Would you open up with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2? The chapters of this book open up to a nation that has very few rules and regulations. The period of Samuel is the period of the judges. It's described in the end of that book that there was no king in Israel. No leadership, no rules, no regulations, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, we have a nation that has many rules and many regulations, and yet we have still managed to have everyone do what is right in his own eyes. I was emailed this little quip that says, if Jesus were to do his same ministry on earth over again in 1999, he would be wanted by the FDA for turning water into wine without a license, the EPA for killing fig trees, the AMA for practicing medicine without a license, the Department of Health for asking people to open graves, for raising the dead, and for feeding 5,000 people in the wilderness, the NEA for teaching without a certificate, OSHA for walking on the water without a life jacket, and for flying without an airplane, the SPCA for driving hogs into the sea, the National Board of Psychiatrists for giving advice on how to live a guilt-free life, the NOW, National Organization of Women, for not choosing a woman apostle, the Abortion Rights League for saying that whoever harms children, it's better that they had never been born, the Interfaith Movement for condemning other religions, and by the zoning department for building mansions without a permit. Our nation is overrun with organizations, with laws and regulations, courts, etc. And with all of that, we still have an incredible high crime rate and rate of corruption. The index of leading cultural indicators says that from the 1960s, the era of love and peace, etc., to the 1990s, there has been a 560% increase in violent crime. That's too staggering to even pick up on in a statistic. There has been a corresponding 400% increase in illegitimate births and 200% increase in suicides. I know, when you hear that, we're awfully tempted to be like that grumpy old grandpa who was visiting his family on a Sunday afternoon, took a nap, and his young grandson decided to play a trick on grandpa, smearing a dab of Lindberger cheese on grandpa's mustache, so that when he woke up, grandpa said, this room stinks. And he went into the next room and said, this whole house stinks. And he walked outside and the whole world stinks. We're tempted to do that as we see and hear of tragedies that go on all around us every day in every nation of the world, it seems. Well, Samuel grew up in a very corrupt nation. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. There's a tremendous transition happening here. And he could have been tempted to walk outside and say, the world stinks. But rather he decided that he was strategically placed by God 
at just the right time and just the right place to do something about it. It's one thing to curse the darkness, as you've heard. It's another thing to turn on the light. And this young boy decided that he would be one to do that. He becomes, in effect, a mover and a shaker, the next prophet of the nation of Israel. Yes, even a child can become a great leader and influence an entire nation. Joseph was a young man when he became prime minister of Egypt. Daniel was a teenager when he was deported to Babylon and became eventually second in command. It can happen and it can happen again. And we see that Samuel is helping to heal the sores of this nation. Now, we're in chapter 2, and I would draw your attention to verse 12. We're going to paint a very dark picture before we see the solution to the darkness. And uh, the author paints three strokes with his brush that I'd like you to notice. First of all, the leadership was corrupt. That's evident beginning in verse 12 as we have the character of the leaders. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Let's back up just a minute. The sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were the priests that officiated in the temple or the tabernacle at that time in Shiloh. In that era, they were the leadership of the nation. They didn't have kings. They didn't have prime ministers. They had a tabernacle. They had priests. And these were the leaders. And the sons of Eli, the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas, it says were corrupt. That's their character. In Hebrew, it's literally they were sons of Belial, which means they were worthless or wicked. Belial becomes a metaphor in the New Testament for the devil. What a thing to say about guys who work in the tabernacle. They're on staff in the house of God, but they're the sons of the devil. Wow. Corrupt. You know, a lot of people think that if they just manage to go to church, it's all it takes. It's going to rub off. And it's, it's almost like they, it's a facade. They act like it. They come through the doors of the church and this transformation takes place. I've often said that the parking lot is one of the most miraculous places on earth. Because people can be driving to church and have horrible arguments, verbal abuse, and suddenly they hit the parking lot and the transformation takes place. It's hallelujah, bless God. Honey, where's my halo? (laughs) Haven't seen it in 20 years. You know, Christian hangouts may actually be the most dangerous places. It's where the devil lurks. The upper room in Jerusalem, the night of the Last Supper, was the most dangerous place to be in Jerusalem. Satan was there among the disciples. And he was there to work his work. The problem is stated in verse 12. It says they did not know the Lord. They work for God, but they don't know the one they work for. They don't know God. Remember Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, Many will come to me in that day, that day being Judgment Day, and they'll say, Lord, right word, did we not do many wonderful works in your name? Right words again. Did we not cast out demons, etc.? And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. 
You may say the right things and do right things, but did you know the one personally? And that's the idea here. They didn't know the Lord personally, experientially. There's an awful lot of people like the goat who wanted to be a lion. He convinced himself that if he could just walk like lions walk and talk like lions talk and go where lions go, why he would be a lion. And so he practiced every day. He tried to get that majestic gait of the lion and he'd try to move his goat body through the jungle with majesty and thought he did a pretty good job. And so he thought he would try to talk like lions talk and try to turn that pitiful little bleat of a goat into a majestic deep roar of a lion. And he actually convinced himself that he had done it. There's only one step left, and that is to go where lions go. So the next day, he went where lions went at about lunchtime. (laughs) End of story, end of goat. And so many people think, all I have to do is talk like Christians talk and walk like Christians walk and go where Christians go and I'll be one. Hophni and Phinehas, the leaders themselves, did not know the Lord. They were corrupt. That's their character. Notice their conduct beginning in verse 13. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling, and he would thrust it into the pan, kettle, or cauldron or pot. The priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. He wants to cook in his own way. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would then answer, No, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. According to the law, the priest got a portion of the sacrifice that was brought. If it was a wave offering, the priest was given the breast. If it was a heave offering, the priest was to have the thigh. It was designated and specified by law. These priests didn't care what the law said. They just wanted to get whatever came up from the pot. I'll take that, all of it. Well, you can't. It's not, well, I don't care. I want it. So there was no accountability, no fear of the Lord. They were doing whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted to do it. And so that was their conduct, corrupt conduct. These are national leaders, keep in mind, going through the motions of worship, the motions of the law, but breaking the law, bending it themselves. I was reading this week a little quip that said that Washington is full of peace monuments. We build one after every war. And I thought of that, and I thought of this tabernacle setting, that the tabernacle was full of offerings, but God was not present in those offerings. Something else to notice as you go on to verse 22, skip down, and that is the carnality of these folks. Eli, that's the high priest, that's their dad, was very old. 
And he heard everything his sons did to all of Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Not only do these guys steal from God, they're having sexual relations with the women who came to keep the entrance of the tabernacle clean. That's what we think they did at least. Exodus 38 mentions women again, and it seems that they were there just to tidy up the place. These guys used their power to take advantage and were very immoral leaders of the nation, spiritual leaders of the tabernacle. What's worse than an immoral nation? When its leaders practice immoral acts and it goes unchecked. Listen to this quote. To allow a preacher of the gospel when he is caught beyond a shadow of a doubt committing an immoral act to remain in his position as pastor or whatever would be the most gross stupidity, close quote, given by Reverend Jimmy Swaggart in the late 80s just before he was caught with prostitutes. Yet, after he was caught and the assemblies said that he should be removed for a period of discipline for a year, denied that leverage and remained behind the pulpit. So we have here in our chapter unsaved priests defying God's law, having sexual relations, well, excuse me, in modern terms, inappropriate relations with the women at the tabernacle. It gets worse. Notice their callousness. Verse 23, he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not good. It's not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father. It shows you their callousness. It also shows you the weakness, I think, of their father. Their father sort of has a wimpy rebuke, don't you think? He's the high priest. He can pull the carpet out from under these guys. He can say, you're out. This is God's house. That won't be done. You're fired. But rather it's, this isn't good. It's not good. Shouldn't do it. What he could have stopped them and took a, a stand for morality and justice and truth, which he should have done. It was very, very weak. And yet this was an open scandal. And they disregarded it. It was a little slap on the wrist. They disregarded his threat as an idle threat, which it was. Years ago in Germany, there was a, a young Jewish boy who greatly admired his father. The family centered their lives around worship, going to the synagogue, religious instruction. The father did it and demanded all the family do it. When the boy grew up a little more, and he was a teenager, the family was forced to another town in Germany where there was no synagogue at all. And the business elite of the community attended the local Lutheran church. The father of that boy came home and announced to his Jewish family that they were abandoning their Jewish traditions and going to the Lutheran church because it would be better for business. The teenager was confused, bewildered, grew angry, and eventually very bitter left Germany eventually, went to England where he studied, formulated his ideas. This episode still haunted him. 
And he wrote a book. And in his book, he's talked about a new movement, a new world order. And in his book, he said that religion is the opiate of the masses designed for economic reasons. It was Karl Marx. And his embittered ideas have brought millions under its sway. Shows you the influence of a father's hypocrisy that is still with us today. This man should have stood for the truth. This man should have stood for the truth. But he didn't. It was a very weak kind of a rebuke. And they were calloused. Now let's notice one other thing, and that is their clout or their influence. Verse 24, he says, No, my sons. Notice what he says. It's not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people sin, transgress. Go back to verse 17. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. You know what that means? They hated worship. The duplicity, the hypocrisy of these young priests who were corrupt, who didn't know God, who were callous to the things of God, who stole the meat, who laid with the women, caused such an abhorrence that it drove people away. It didn't bring people to church. It drove them away because of their hypocrisy. It's very similar to David's sin. Remember when Nathan the priest will come to King David who committed adultery and murder and will nail David with his parable and say, David, because of this thing, you have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. In other words, you've got enemies of God out there that look at the people of God already very doubtful and you've given them more ammunition And now they're going to look at God's people and say, look at them. They tell us that we need help. They can't even live what they preach. You've given them great opportunity to blaspheme. People will follow your footsteps quicker than they'll follow your advice. And whenever the church shuts its eyes to sin, whether it's in the pulpit or in the pew, and doesn't deal with it but covers it up, it'll drive people away. And... God will judge that church. Did you know that? The New Testament says judgment must begin at the house of God. It does here. Did you notice the end of verse 25? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. (laughs) That's judgment. It's beginning at the house of God, the tabernacle. There's an engraving on a wall of a church in Lübeck, Germany, a cathedral that says, Thus speaketh Christ our Lord to us. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and you see me not. You call me the way, but you walk me not. You call me life and you live me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich, but ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. If I condemn thee, then blame me not. Judgment was about to fall in this house. The leadership was corrupt. There's another stroke of the brush the author draws our attention to. Chapter 3, verse 1. Revelation was scarce. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. And listen to this. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. 
That's a pregnant phrase. Full of meaning. The word of the Lord was rare. Listen to that same verse in the Knox translation. In those days, a message from the Lord was a rare treasure. God's voice was seldom heard. God wasn't speaking much in those days. Why? Because people weren't listening much in those days. God had given them the law. They had broken the law. They weren't attending worship. The leadership was breaking the law. God had nothing to say. People were not listening to the voice of God. Worship was entertainment or ritual. So God's voice was not heard. Now keep in mind that Israel had enjoyed a continuous flow of God's voice for years. The law came from heaven to Mount Sinai. They had leaders like Moses and Joshua and some of the judges. And there was this flow of revelation. Now the well is dry. The word of God is rare. Could that be said of many pulpits today? The word of the Lord is rare. Oh, it's around. It's, it's mentioned now and then, but it's becoming rare. I think so. I find that the trend in this country, in many evangelical churches, is toward a what is known as seeker-friendly model. Don't mention much Bible. Don't mention the blood of Christ. Take out those hymns that say that. And let's just... Rather than feed the sheep, let's entertain the goats. And you know what our missionaries from the field are always telling us when they go out to all over the world? They find that by and large in the organized church, the leadership is corrupt and there's no Bible teaching. The Word of God is rare. These same two things. In almost any country where the church has been for a while, corrupt leadership that wants to be bought off and nobody's teaching the Bible anymore. And what they're asking us to do is come over and have conferences and pastor leadership training to teach them how to give the Word. They're hungry for the Word because the Word of God is rare. If Paul the Apostle were here today, I know what he'd say to the church. He'd say what he said to Timothy. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. So rare to find. People are hungry for truth. And yet churches are losing many people who want to know truth. A poll was taken to determine why people are not going to church, those who left. 49% said the church was not efficient in helping people find the meaning of life. 56% said the church was more interested in organizational issues than spiritual issues. It's sad when those who used to go to church and are not involved know better what the church ought to be about than those who are going. It ought to be about spiritual things, the word that has become rare. The trend today is to give people, rather than spiritual food, junk food. (laughs) And look at the results. Malnourished believers. That's happening in the nation of Israel. We have the Scriptures. The greatest sin a church can commit is to make the Word of God rare. It should be abundant. Every time you come to a service, the Word of God should be central. Now, having said those things, and it's, it's a black picture, I can tell we're all... Well, look at us. We're all tight right now. Wow. It's bad news back then and, and even now. This is where the light comes in. This is the third stroke of the brush in this picture. 
The opportunity is ideal. Having painted such a black picture, and the paint gets darker as we go along, the very fact that it's so dark in leadership, morally and spiritually, means it's the perfect time to take out the flashlight. Light shines in the darkest places. If you want to go see the stars and their brilliance, would you go to downtown Los Angeles? Would you go to New York City or Chicago and say, I want to look at the stars? No, there's so many lights already. You go to a dark place, go to the mountains, go to the desert, check it out. The backdrop of stars like diamonds is displayed. And so, morally, spiritually, darkness encompasses. And yet, the opportunity is perfect. And the author brings that out in so many words. Um, Notice verse 12 once again. The sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. But look at verse 18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child wearing a linen ephod. In verse 21, the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived, bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Verse 25, nevertheless, these priests did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. And then if you look over at chapter 3 once again, verse 2, it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was, while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel. And he answered, here I am. Go back to verse 3. Notice that phrase. I I meditated on it yesterday. The lamp of the Lord was about to go out. You get the picture of this old priest. His fire had gone out inside. His eyes are growing dim, spiritually and physically. He's lying down. And the lamp's about to go out. The lamp is the the lampstand in the tabernacle, that golden fixture. And if you remember the law, it said that that thing had to be kept lit continually by the priests. But it was neglected. It's almost out. It's darkness at night. The lamp's almost out. And just when darkness is about to totally encompass the tabernacle, God says to a kid, Samuel, and he says, Here I am. And later on he'll say, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. The Word of God is rare. There's no revelation. It's so dark. But God starts to reveal Himself. You get the picture? There's moral darkness. There's spiritual darkness. There's darkness in integrity, darkness in leadership. And yet, when it's almost out, the light, God's raising up a kid to take out the torch and light the nation of fire once again. It's a beautiful picture, really. Beautiful picture. Imagine Samuel. Where was he raised? The tabernacle. What's going on in the tabernacle? Corruption, sexual immorality, stealing. He had a bad environment he grew up in. He could have been so tainted that he would be tempted to walk outside the tabernacle and say, this tabernacle stinks. The world stinks. But he says, Lord, here I am. Is the light in your community growing darker? 
You ever get tempted to say, I hate, I'm moving. It's so dark, it's so corrupt. You find a place that isn't. Or you say, my marriage is so dark, I can't see anything. I'm checking out. Or my church is so dark, the Word of God is not there. There's no teaching the Word. I'm leaving. I have a better suggestion. Raise the torch high. Light the lamp. Say, Lord, here I am. Use me, Lord. Our world is very dark, but now is not the time to wag our little heads and go, tough, bad, wicked world. It's the time to say, Lord, here I am. It's the perfect time to be used. Um, There is probably more than ever before. Maybe I just say this because I'm getting older and I notice it more. There seems to be a feeling of frustration in our nation, a hopelessness, pessimism, skepticism, especially toward leadership. It'll never change. It's all corrupt. You know what Jesus said? He said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a lamp and put a basket over it. But in the open so people can see, so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That implies two things. It implies, number one, the world is dark, has no light of its own. And it implies you can change that. You can do something about that. Heavy burden Jesus placed on us, it sounds like, huh? You are the light of the world. He said, no, wait a minute, Lord. I thought I read somewhere where you said you were the light of the world. What's this we're the light of the world business? He's passing the torch. He's passing the baton. Jesus said, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now before he leaves, he says, it's your turn. When Jesus was on earth, it was like the sun. The sun has its own light. When the sun goes down, what comes up? The moon, which has no light of its own, but simply reflects the light of the sun. That's our job. Like the moon, we reflect the glory of Christ, and the light penetrates the darkness. I uh, found out an interesting fact this week about a Chinese word. Believe me, I don't know Chinese. But there's an interesting word in Chinese, the word crisis. And crisis in Chinese is comprised of two Chinese caricature, two letters, Wei Ji. The first letter means a word. The second letter means another word. The first letter means danger. The second letter means opportunity. Thus, a literal translation of the word crisis in Chinese is a dangerous opportunity. I heard that and I thought, that's a good description of evangelism in a dark world. It's a dangerous opportunity. I say it's dangerous because when people live in darkness and you shine a flashlight in their eyes, they don't take kindly to it. It's dangerous. But it's an opportunity when there's no light to bring one out. Now, before we close completely, there's a couple things about Samuel's life I want you to notice. First of all, he was young. Very young. It says in verse 1, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. Literally, it means a young person. The historian Josephus believes he was 12 years old in this chapter. Other scholars say 13 to 15. So he's a young guy, a young budding teenager between 12 and 15 years of age. And God is going to use him to influence a culture. Some people have trouble thinking that God would use a young person. 
I mean, we would say, well, that person's way too young. When I first moved to this town from California, and uh, I started the church when I was 25, and uh, people said, boy, you're way too young to do this stuff. And I always loved the words that Paul said to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. But then I think of guys like Moses. He was 80 years old when he just started his ministry. Caleb was 85 years old when he said, I'm ready to fight giants again. The point is, you can be any age, any age, a young, very young person or an older person, and if you're willing to be used, God will do it. The call of God can come at any age. But I often find that young people are much more open to spiritual truth than those who get older. It's a fact of life. The Billy Graham organization shows that in their statistics. Here's some of them. At 25 years of age, one in 5,000 are the odds of conversion. 35 years of age, one in 25,000. At age 45, one in 60,000. Age 55, one in 125,000. And over 75, it's just a miracle. (laughs) The odds are exponentially not in favor, but it does happen. And we could do a show of hands real quickly. How many came to follow Christ after age 30? Raise your hand. After age 30. That's when you made your first commitment to Christ and followed Him. Before the age of 30, raise your hand. It's amazing, isn't it? This young boy, Samuel, starts asking the same questions young people always do. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose? I'm open to the things of God. And God got a hold of him. Second thing to notice, and we'll close with this, the kid was willing. He was willing. Samuel, here I am. And then finally, in verse 9 and 10, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. I'm listening, I'll obey. Where was he when God called him? In the tabernacle. What was he doing when God called him? Actively serving. What kind of people does God call? Those who are actively serving him already. You know, it's a lot easier to control a bicycle that's moving than one that's standing still. It's a lot easier to control a Christian that's moving than one that is standing still. Samuel didn't say, you know what, Um, I'm going to go back home to Rama. God, here's my phone number cell phone number, fax number, email address. If you ever want me, just give me a call. I'm I'm available. No, he was already active and involved, and God called him, and he became a prophet. It still works the same way. If you are expecting an elder or a deacon to come knock at your door one day with a word from the Lord for you to be involved in some ministry, ain't going to happen. But those who are already actively involved in something and are moving, God will so often call. Well, maybe you've looked at your dollar bills and coins lately and you've noticed a phrase on there. You've noticed it again. It says, in God we trust. And maybe you've looked at that and you've thought with pessimism, yeah, right. We don't trust in God anymore as a nation. And you might uh, dwell on that and be tempted to say, you know, this... This world stinks. Solution. Shine the light. During the dark days of early America, Benjamin Franklin was sent a letter by a pessimistic man with a pessimistic ending. He said, The sun of liberty has set. 
in our country. And Franklin, who loved challenges and wasn't afraid of the dark, said, Then light the candles. When God hung his star in Bethlehem's sky, it was when Israel was dark spiritually, morally. They were corrupt. And God was showing a new dawn, new age. Light had come. It was noticeable for miles around. A single sunbeam can dispel many shadows. Will it be your sunbeam? Please, this week, don't just be guilty of reading newspapers and headlines and wagging your head and saying, this world stinks. But say, where's my flashlight? I'm going to get out, change by the glory and grace of God where I'm at and watch God move. Lord, that's our prayer. That's what we want. We want to be movers and shakers in our homes, in our community, in our businesses, with our families, in our towns, our states, our country, our world. We're your people, Lord. You've got a plan. Just when the light's about to go out, it demands those who see crisis as a dangerous opportunity and would rise to the challenge and say, Here I am, Lord. Speak, your servant hears. Find such willing hearts among your people. The call this morning, Lord, The challenge this morning is not to unbelievers coming to Christ, but to believers coming to service. To be actively involved in spreading the kingdom. In some way, Lord, we don't want to walk away feeling a tinge of guilt. We want to feel that gracious conviction of your spirit saying, this is the way, walk in it. And so show us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.